Well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, let me open us in a word of prayer first. <clears throat> Father God, you are good. You are so good to us. And we just thank you for the opportunity to be here at GMHC. Lord, to be encouraged, to be uh, bathed in your spirit. Lord, we pray that you touch our hearts, you touch our minds. Help us to see this world as you do. Amen. So communication is really difficult. I mean, even communicating within a culture that we're familiar with. I, I don't know if any of you guys have teenage daughters, but I can attest Communication is very difficult. Um, And then it's even harder, you know, when we're trying to communicate with people that are different from us. They have different backgrounds. They're raised in different traditions and, you know, different culture overall. So that's what we're going to try to talk about today is get a sense of how how we can be more culturally sensitive. Um, The title of the talk is Cultural Competency, and I think it's, it's a, it's a bait and switch because unfortunately none of us ever become culturally competent. But we could at least start working in that direction. Um, so <clears throat> a little bit about me. Um, my name is David Narita. I'm a Japanese-American, fourth generation. Uh, we served in Cambodia um, for 13 years uh, with OMF International. So both my wife and I are family physicians. Um, but we spend a lot of our time doing church planting and student ministry as well. Um, we came back and, um, and I taught at William Jessup University, which is a Christian university in California. So I teach uh, cultural anthropology, soci- sociology, global health. And then I've been working uh, as a physician as well. So that's, that's a bit of who I am. So our goals for today. So first is to recognize how culture influences not just not just how healthcare is delivered, which oftentimes we think of, but actually how we actually perceive health, what's important to us in health. Um, So how it's it's um, it's actually sought by people as well. I'm going to hopefully try to introduce the idea of cultural bias and and try to help us see a little bit of where our biases lay. Then review a framework of how we can uh, develop cultural competency uh, over time, what types of questions we could ask. And then I'm going to just end with some cases from Cambodia, just that explores how we could put this into action, just to give you some ideas. So what I want to do is start with what I call the red string principle. And... This idea came up when we when we first went to Cambodia. <clears throat> we were assigned a language helper who also taught us a lot about culture. And one of these culture sessions, he said, um, "Oh, you might see these little red strings around Cambodians' wrists or on uh, different possessions." And he said that that's a sign of good luck that they that they tie on things. I was like, "Really? I I haven't really seen very many red strings." And um, but I had that idea planted in my head. And when I walked out of my session that day, I began to see strings everywhere. They were tied on the doorknobs, you know, just not just people's wrists, but motorcycles, trees, plants, everything. 
And that brings me to this idea of this red string principle. So if we name something, just drawing my attention to this red string, then we'll actually see it. So I know those strings are always there, out there, but I just didn't see them because they weren't given a name. And then you could understand it. So those red strings had new significance to me. You know, he said they're for protection. So then I realized what people valued. They were tying red strings around things that they valued, right? And then we can engage in it. So now that I know what that meaning is, say if somebody offered me a red string, how would I respond to that? You know, what I, I could think ahead and in that way have a little more control over the chaos of trying to learn a new language and adapt to a new culture. So, so today we're going to be talking about cultural competency and I'm going to bring your attention to a lot of these red strings. So things that you know, you know very well, but I'm hoping that if we put a name to it, you know, if we talk about it as, as that issue, that you'll be able to understand it and you'll be able to engage with it more. And then when you get into the situations that life will bring you into, you'll be able to, um, to respond well to those, those situations. So cultural competence, the dictionary definition or the Wikipedia definition is the ability to understand, communicate with, and effectively interact with people across cultures. So that's, that's a great thing to have. You know, if we can gain that, we can be so much more effective, not just in healthcare, in medicine, I mean, in um, evangelism, but in, in all aspects of our lives, if we really were able to understand people that way. And again, I just want to say up front that cultural competency doesn't mean that you'll have all the right answers, but hopefully it'll give you the places to look to ask the right questions. So um, how does culture impact our views of health? That was one of the things that I sort of posited out there. So let me just go through something that, um, that a woman named Lynn Payer put together. She was a New York Times uh, correspondent, and she lived in, in Europe. And these are some of the observations that she recorded in, in a book of hers. While living in Europe, I was struck by the differences between U.S. and European medicine. Why did the French talk about their livers all the time? Why did the Germans blame their hearts for their fatigue? Why did the British operate so much less than Americans? And why did my French friends become upset when I said I had a virus? I don't know if you guys have international friends, but some of this might begin to resonate with you. So just consider some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in France, which are to dilate cerebral blood vessels, are considered ineffective in Europe and in, in England and America. Um, a Germ German doctor prescribes seven times the amount of digitalis-based drugs than their European colleagues, seven times the amount. Drug doses have varied between 10 to 20 times in strength from country to country. French people have had um, been seven times more likely to receive their drugs in a suppository form. I mean, when was the last time you guys had a suppository? <laughs> Mastectomy rates have been three times higher in New England than in England. 
low blood pressure has been treated with 85 different medications and hydrotherapy in Germany. American rates for a coronary bypass have been 28 times that of some European countries. And the WHO found that doctors in different countries when given the same charts uh, diagnose different causes of death, even with that same chart, that same information. So we ask, you know, so why do these differences exist? You know, can we explain this? So, you know, some people would say, well, perhaps some countries are more scientific than others. You know, we in America like to talk about our evidence-based medicine. Maybe, maybe other countries aren't really doing things right. It sounds a little nationalistic, but maybe, you know, some, some part in that. Um, maybe there's different patterns of illness. Like we all know that there's uh, different communities that have higher rates of diabetes or hypertension, right? So maybe this is, this is related to that. And probably there is some degree of that too, but not those examples that I gave you. Maybe the way that we document things is different. Maybe people measure high blood pressure differently, um, which is true. We have different standards across the world, but um, but again, it doesn't completely completely explain that. Access infrastructure, right? Somebody in Somalia would have a lot harder time of getting a mastectomy than somebody in the U.S., right? But what I want to posit is that culture is what influences so much of what those differences we saw are. Um, so it's not the biological part of things. It's actually how we see our world, how we interpret it, how we seek help. So when we talk about culture, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of times we think about the traditions that we have, the food that we eat, you know, the... the um, different festivals. I'm sorry, I'm going to just move this closer. Um, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's the things that we value, the things that are important to us. Um, so, um, so just for example, with the, um, with the difference in healthcare systems, you know, what do we incentivize uh, compared to other countries. That shows what we value uh, compared to other countries. It, our culture <clears throat> forms our individual uh, preferences to things and that drives norms in our society. So, you know, we might think of norms as like what we're wearing, um, you know, our dress, our food, but it's much deeper than that. It's, it constitutes what's moral, What's honorable? What's beautiful? What's normal aging and what's something that we have to treat? You know, what's actual disease? Um, and what can we just uh, reassure people with? So it impacts us very deeply that way. And then what causes things to happen? How do we connect the dots? And this is very different too in different cultures. So. You know, for example, in that initial um, paragraph by Lynn Payer, Americans, we, we blame a lot of things on viruses, infectious disease, whereas other countries, like the British, it's always about their constipation and their bowels, and they, they, um, 
they're much more in tune to that as a culture, and they have a lot more treatment for that, you know, compared to us. Um, so just to, just as an, uh, a more specific um, examples of this, um, broad sweeps. So in France, they tend to value um, thought, and in America, we tend to value action. So French uh, providers are compensated for consultations, whereas American providers are compensated for procedures. It's just a simple way of incentivizing what's important. French tend to idolize the human form. We Americans, we tend to augment the human form, right? So as a result, we perform a whole lot more surgeries than our French counterparts, um, given the same clinical presentations. Um, because of our ideas of what beauty is we, uh, and, and the sacredness of the human form, we do a lot more hysterectomies, mastectomies than, um, than France. And it's, it's just wrapped up in that cultural milieu. So that was a very long introduction just to say that culture really impacts who we are, how we perceive health, how we deliver health, how we um, perceive reality and receive the gospel, you know, how we communicate in, in every form. So what I want to do is I want to jump to a framework <clears throat> for cultural competence. And I tried to keep this simple, just four steps, just ways to, something that you could run through in your head um, and, um, and hopefully help you to become more culturally aware and be able to ask the right questions and in that way become, uh, show greater cultural competency. So the first step of <clears throat> cultural competence, developing cultural competence, is to, <clears throat> is to learn more about, about culture. And you have to start with your own culture. So I thought what we could do is just talk a little bit about American culture. I'm just making the assumption that most of us here are Americans. So if you think about it, what are, what are some of the values, the uh, symbols of America? Um, just think off, off the top of your heads. Autonomy. Autonomy. Yeah, so being our own selves, being independent um, in some ways, yeah. Our rights to freedoms. Yeah, freedom is really important for us. Um, our ideas of what freedom is, yeah. Yeah, what are some other things? Education, Education. yeah, it's very important. Um, oh, efficiency. Efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole thing called the McDonaldization of of society. Um, you guys can look it up, but efficiency is one of the core uh, American values. Yeah. Hollywood. So what 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 do you mean by Hollywood? Unpack that a little bit more. That's very true. I 
Yeah. So Hollywood just exaggerating everything. And yeah, a lot of people say, you know, America is very different from what they thought it would be. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. You know, liberty, um, the Statue of Liberty. Um, um, yeah, we were talking about things like independence, autonomy, efficiency. Yeah. <clears throat> this is a um, cartoon that I show my students. And it's not perfect, but I think it gets the, the, the idea across. So uh, the woman in the bikini is saying, everything covered but her face, or but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. So let's see what the woman in the nakib says. Nothing but her, uh, nothing covered but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. So what's the value that the that the woman in the bikini has? Oh, vanity. Sorry. Yeah, vanity. I was going to put a more positive spin on it, maybe like self-expression. But I, I get... <laughs> yeah. I mean, these culturally defined ideas of beauty, right? Freedom. Freedom. Yeah, freedom to be able to do that. Right. So she doesn't have freedom uh, to dress like that. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, but what do you think she might be thinking in her mind when she sees the woman in the bikini? Well, she is taught that that is very bad. That's how she is brought up. Yeah. That's how she's taught. Yeah. That's why she wears what she's got. got. Right, so the woman in the kib is wearing that because she's taught that not wearing clothes is bad. And maybe that that dressing the way that she's dressing is something about modesty, right? Maybe it's about tradition, like it's attached to her society's values, so she's becoming part of a larger tradition by, by the dress that she's wearing. But again, that's just outside of the home. Right, outside of the home. Uh-huh. The honor, shame, culture. Right. Honorable, right, right. So those are very, very different values, right, um, be, that are being placed on this one activity. So there's, so a lot of times there are I, there are values that we can identify in, a, in an activity in, in some expression of culture like this. And I like to say that that's the golden rule, and that's sort of this step in getting to know more about culture is trying to figure out what the golden rule that's being expressed in the situation that you're in is. So what's, um, you know, what's directing their, their actions or their thought process? Um, what are those things that they're, they're raised with in their culture to value, uh, to um, respect that's, that's being expressed? Um, and oftentimes that's very hard to that's hard to ascertain. You know, if we're not familiar with that culture, and we need to um, dig down deeper into it. But just uh, just realizing that 
that people in this situation dress differently um, for much deeper-seated reasons than maybe we might think. The next step that I have in becoming culturally competent is investing in the language. And I can't begin to stress how important this is, um, either to speak the language or to use a trained interpreter. And I know that's a tall order. You know, you're sitting there with your patient and her 12-year-old bilingual daughter, and it's very easy just to pull that daughter in, but we know all the problems that go with that. You know, there's so much miscommunication, so much expectation that's relayed back and forth in doing that. So calling the, calling the translation line and, and using that is much better. Understanding that language is even better. Um, so I'm not going to say too much more about that, but just if you are thinking about doing long-term missions, I'd really encourage you to take the time to, to learn the language. You learn so much more about the culture just by understanding the language. The third um, step is to ask questions with an attitude of learning. So oftentimes we ask questions with the attitude of fishing. We're looking for a specific answer, right? We want people to sort of, in a way, parrot what we're, what we're saying or thinking. And we don't want to do that. I think if you could come across with curiosity, come across trying to build trust, really listening to the answers that they give you in a non-judgmental way, you're going to find out so much more about how that person is understanding that situation and be able to um, find the best solutions in that situation. So I have to say, a lot of projects, a lot of things that we saw in Cambodia failed because we weren't asking questions. Um, and they could have gone much better if we just had taken the time first to to, to sit down and really understand things better uh, from from the Cambodians' perspectives. Yeah. Um, so one example was um, we were doing um, trying to do a clean water project. And we were talking to people about different ways for cleaning their water. And we thought the, the easiest way was just to boil their water. And um, they, we noticed that the, the villagers weren't boiling their water even after we had talked about it. And we were like, did you guys understand the importance? Oh, oh yeah, we totally understand the importance of, of clean water. You know, their kids are sick. They're dying. They, they fully understand that. But finally, one person answered, and he said, we don't have enough firewood to boil our water and to cook our food. And it's more important to cook our food. And it's like, ah, I get it. I totally get that. But, you know, as an as a American, I just don't even, I don't even think in those terms, right? So, um, yeah, so I think we could have gotten ahead of, you know, one step ahead if we had just asked that question at the beginning. Yeah. Then the, the fourth question, we're almost through this whole thing, is to involve them in their solutions. So, you know, we know a lot about this idea of, um, of 
you know, developing trust that way, building ownership that way, um, you know, that's that's all very important. Um, and it helps the solution to actually come to pass rather than just being some thought that was placed in people's minds. You know, if they're part of that, if they're part of actively developing that solution, and then that solution would be more culturally, environmentally relevant to where they are. So, you know, you could say things like, you know, what do you see as the next steps? Or what do you think about this? But it's not necessarily a a blank slate. You know, it's like you don't ask a diabetic, so what do you think about this? And they say, oh, I'm just going to go out and eat ice cream. You you know, it's not a blank slate. You say, okay, that's great. I'm glad you have ownership. You could sort of redirect that, you know, and you could say, "That's, that's great. But you know what? I'm concerned that you're going to die young because your blood sugar is always going to be high. You might say that. But, you know, I'm concerned that your, your blood sugar is going to be high if you're, not, if you're always eating ice cream. And these are, the, these are the tools that you need to make better food choices, you know, that way. So going back to your boiling the water and the lack of blood. Yeah. If you had done that, you called them in their own solution, what would your questions be? Yeah, so the, the question, if... Um, Going back to the the boiling the water for clean water, you know, what would the question be? Um, what are the what are the ways that you're cleaning your water now, and what are ways that you hope to clean your water in the future? You know, that you lack the ability to do now, but you feel would be better ways to clean water. Maybe something like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. So that's why I'd even step away from the boiling water because that was my idea, and apparently that was a bad idea, right? So you got to you got to pull away from that and say, you know, because there's, there's other ways to clean to make water potable. So what are what are some other people's ideas? Um, and that that may, that would have been a better question, yeah. And eventually we did get there. <laughs> so, but um, yeah. So try to involve them in that, um, so that they have that ownership and they have that say. And you can you can continue with these questions and this back and forth until you reach something that's really going to help people. Um, whether it's you know with their health, um, um, you know, in, in a uh, clinic setting or with development in the village, with clean water, or even understanding um, scripture. You know, really digging down deeper and, and understanding what are the assumptions that they have about the Bible. We can't really, it's hard to answer their questions if we don't really know what those assumptions are. Um, okay, so... So the, um, the four steps for cultural competence or for moving a little bit closer towards cultural competence. So, <clears throat> so learning about culture, starting with our own, just realizing that we're cultural beings and, and seeing how our values, our traditions impact how we deliver health care, how we um, present the gospel. Invest in language. Ask questions. 
and involve people in their own solutions. So pretty easy. Four steps, right? You guys got it? I didn't come up with a good catchy acronym, but I think it's, it should be short enough. So what I wanted to do is jump into some case studies. Um, these all took place in a hospital in Cambodia. Um, the hospital wasn't Christian, and I'll just give you that, that background uh, before we jump in. So the first case is um, about a little girl named Sopet. So Sopet was a 12-year-old girl with end-stage congestive heart failure. She had rheumatic heart disease like many of the kids do and um, ended up <clears throat> with valvular heart disease and um, was in florid heart failure. We had had her on pressors for over a week. And our hope was to really get her stable enough that we could withdraw the pressors and she could go home. Um, and um, be, be with her family when she when she passed away, but we weren't we hadn't been successful in doing that. Um, so her prognosis was really a few days at most. Um, so the Buddhist cardiologist uh, on rounds, the family was there and her parents, and he shared with her uh, about her their daughter's condition, <clears throat> and he said, um, you know, your daughter's very very sick. Uh, she's, she might die. But they do heart transplants in Australia. They're very expensive, but if you could raise enough money, she could get a heart transplant in Australia. Um, they're very safe, and, and she'll do really well. And the parents said, well, you know, is she going to have a normal life after that? And, and he said, Yes, she could get married. She could have kids. You'll be grandparents. She'll be just like she didn't have this bad heart. So after rounds, I went to talk to the parents. And, sorry. And, and they had left. I couldn't find them. So I said, um, sorry, I don't mean to get <clears throat> this emotional about this. Um, I, I just asked the nurse, where, where did the parents go? And they said, she said they went to plant vegetables so that they could raise money to get their daughter a heart transplant. And that, and that girl died the next day. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So what's my golden rule, or what's your golden rule in this, in this scenario? I think we're, we're probably the same. I'd say for me, nobody should die alone, especially not a little girl. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's something that I hold so deeply in my heart. And then what do you think the Buddhist cardiologist's idea was? Uh, for any of you guys that serve in Buddhist areas, you might be able to guess. What's the main tenet of Buddhism? Yeah, I think I heard it. You don't create suffering, right? So, so we shouldn't create suffering in that girl's family. 
So if you tell the, the family that the girl's going to die, that creates suffering. So I asked him some questions. I said, so what do, what do we do? You know, if, you, if, if your culture says that we can't tell the truth in this situation, what do we do? What's our role? And he said, we should give hope. Um, we should allow her parents to feel like they're doing something to help. Um, we should remove them from a difficult situation. So I think, I think some of us are like screaming that this is wrong, but this is cultural. And that's what I want to say. This is who we are as Americans, but that's not who Cambodians are as Cambodians. And we need to understand that. Right. Right. Well, this goes, I, I'll just mention this because it sort of fits in with this idea of learning the language. So there is no word for honesty in Cambodia. The word that they use for honesty, smahtrong, is the same as for faithfulness and for loyalty. So if I'm being loyal to this, these parents, I'm going to tell them what, I, what the cardiologist told them. Right? Um, our, the culture penetrates language too that way. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know. Is there a right answer, a right solution to this? You know, I asked, so, you know, what can we do um, to give hope uh, and comfort to this family? Um, how can we best... Um, minister, support a family like this within Cambodian culture, but then also bringing in a little bit of my culture too. You know, and, and we didn't come up with any any uh, set um, set conclusions like uh, what what those steps would be. But you know, I was talking about you know potentially calling in friends or family members to be around the parents so that they're not in this alone, you know, that they're surrounded by their supports, you know, of, and this is something that we would do in the States, you know, which all the pressers while the family was there so that, um, so that they, they were there when their child, you know, to hold their hand when their child passed away. Um, yeah, just giving them that space to say goodbye in a, in a good way. Those were those were mostly my solutions. I think the the Buddhist cardiologist had his solution already, and that was to send send the parents away. Um, but but you see how our we come from very different places. Um, we have the same problem that we're trying to solve, and we need to be cognizant that they're not wrong in the solutions that they they have. It might seem so wrong to us, but it's but it's their culturally uh, appropriate solutions. 
but we have we have room to grow. And and you know, as the missionary in that hospital, I could I could challenge them, just help them to see things a little differently, perhaps. Okay, you guys got a hang of this idea? Okay, I'm going to jump into the next one. So <clears throat> the next story is about this little boy named Ned. He was 11 years old. I worked at a children's hospital. Sorry. That's why all these kids are little. Um, 11 years old. He fell out of a tree. He had an open fracture of his, of his humerus. Went to uh, several traditional healers that did the things that the traditional healers in Cambodia do. They massage it with um, different liniments and pack some herbs on it. Um, you know, just bandage it with different types of leaves and things. And when he came to our emergency room, he was in tetany. He was um, completely tetonic, right? So we paralyzed him, put him on a vent. And in rounds the next day, you know, the the residents, they had seen tetany before. And they were like... um, Oh, actually, let me see. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, oh, yeah. So they they were saying, so why why are we treating this kid, Ned? Because this is going to be so expensive. You know, weeks and weeks on the ventilator. So um, so is that something we want to do? So what do you think my golden rule is? Or what would your golden rule be in this situation? Why would we treat a kid like this, Ned? Right, it's reversible. So it, it should be treated. Yeah. Life is sacred. I think that's the, the thing. It's We give 100% to any life because it's sacred. Um, because we're created in God's image. What do you think the the residence golden rule is? Yes, I think they took a very utilitarian approach. They said we should be doing the most good for the most people. I said, okay, so we're supposed to do the most good for the most people. Um, but why are we working in a hospital then? Because we're in this hospital and the outpatient clinic sees hundreds of kids a day and it doesn't cost nearly a drop of what the inpatient ward uh, does. You know, do you guys really think that we should do the most good for the most people or was it just like in this situation? And they so they, they were thinking about it more and they said... Doesn't Ned deserve this? Because he went to a traditional healer before he came to us. Um, he, he was meant to die, and we're just fighting against his karma or his fate. So no matter what we do, it's, it's his fate to die. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were actually... Mm, yeah, we were just a children's hospital, so they, we didn't deliver babies, but they were given fitness. Yeah. 
yeah, he was probably a little too old and a little too much, um, too, too big of an oculin. Yeah. Actually, you know, I, I don't even know. He was probably born at home, to be honest, so he probably never did get a tetanus boost, a tetanus uh, series. But. Well, one of the big factors that you're dealing with is our Judeo Christian uh, principles. And, of course, they don't see it from that perspective. So, you know, you've got that to deal with right up front. Yeah. Right. So, you know, uh, if these are your residents, you're going to have to figure out what, what what your values are and where they're where they're compatible with yours and where they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and in that figuring out, we could address it, and we could say, "This is how how my values are different because my faith informs it different." I feel that we're not at the whim of some impersonal force that determines or dictates what happens to us, but but God gives us the capacity, the ability to to, to make some differences. Yeah. Yeah. is a fantastic comment. Um, I'm just going to say it for the for the recording. But how much does our values our values impacted by the resources that we have? So in this case where we say we value human life, is that just because we're in a resource-rich area? And how, how do we say that Cambodians don't value life? They do value life. Yeah. But they don't have the resources, the same resources that we have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that culture forms within an environment or a milieu. So that's so. So it's sort of related that way. Yeah. But that that is a very excellent point. And. And I should actually add that to the talk, that it's not that the Cambodians don't value life, for sure. Yeah. It's all, it depends on how much you value, how much you're willing to. Mm-hmm. The same thing with England and with the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. You know, they say, you know, uh, mother's got cancer, so we better let her die. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, pretty soon they're giving her medicine to take her life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a... There's a difference in how 
how different cultures uh, evaluate things. Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, it's very, very evident when you compare America with, say, the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've had Good patients. <clears throat> I've had patients that that were fearful for their family that was in the Netherlands because they were sick and they were afraid the doctors were going to come and take their life before their mm-hmm. family could do anything. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. But in my experience in the last. Yeah. Years. Yeah. That's that's tough. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. I know both of you guys had your hands up. Oh, okay. Sorry. Mm-hmm. We might not even be aware that Christians in other cultures could have a completely different value and call it Christian as well. Right. Just because we think we have Christian values, it creates a bias that we are right. And that That's God, a very good point. That morally yeah. God approves our values above any other uh-huh. culture just because we call ourselves Christian. Mm-hmm. And so it removes the humility of learning Perhaps what another culture or even Christian from another culture, their perspective could enrich what our approach could be. Yeah, so it's better to call ours American values. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Oh, good. And That's really good. That has got to be, first of all, incredibly challenging to create it and equally as challenging to practice it. Yeah. But it was fascinating to listen to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. What a creative idea. Yeah. Yeah, that is. I should run and talk to her and yeah. see how they did it. It's very interesting, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Actually, I'm going to just jump to the third case. I realize that we're getting close to the end here. Um, okay. So, um, so I was mentioning that we had residents at our that at our program, and rounds just haven't been ideal. Um, the residents tend to ask these really esoteric questions. And when I sort of turned that back on them, the little Socratic method thing, they got very frustrated. They got very annoyed at me. And I'm like, what am I missing? How can I make rounds go better? So what do you think uh, my golden rule is in terms of teaching? I mean, I think... Yeah, ask more questions, right? So I'm very much, you know, the Socratic method. I mean, just even with you all, I, I like when we're all talking together because I feel like we engage more and we learn, we learn better that way. 
And I don't know, some people who might be in Asia, what do you think the residents were saying? Or what's their golden rule? Because I had absolutely no idea. I had to ask this. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry, I couldn't quite hear. Yeah. Yeah, it was sort of that type of thing. They, um, that, you know, I'm the authority, I'm supposed to be giving them the answers. And for them, they, they try to stump the authority, right? So if they, could, if they could stump me, then that shows that they're really good, that they really know that information well. And they've really tried to study to, to stump me on this. But, you know, they, they, they said, you're robbing us. We study hard to find something to stump you, and then you never even try to answer it. You just, like, turn it back to the group. Um, so they, they said, oh, we're not even able to show what we know because you're already, you know. And it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, it was, like, so different from what, what, I, would, what I would have thought. So, um, so I just said, so what can we do to make you guys shine? to look really good, to show what you know, you know, to retain that knowledge well. And we just we just talked about it, what might be good. So what we ended up doing was we changed our walk around rounds, you know, where we go to each patient and we talk about the patient, just to the first 15 minutes just sitting down, one of the residents would do a little mini presentation and they would shine. You know, they would show what they know about this topic. They'd pull it, usually pull in their patient, and it worked great. And I thought, you know, then they weren't dissatisfied with me, <laughs> and I still was allowed to ask questions and and get people engaged where they were they were teaching each other rather than me just teaching them. Okay, so. I picked these three examples because they're three different types of things. The first one with Sopat, the little girl with the uh, congestive heart failure, that's a different worldview, right? What's um, my more Judeo-Christian worldview versus her, or American worldview versus the, this Buddhist worldview of not, not creating suffering? And then the second one is a diff- different ethical uh, basis. So, you know, they were thinking utilitarian. I was thinking we're upholding this value of life. And then the last one, different norms. You know, I'm from a Western educational system, and I just assumed that, foolishly, that, you know, students and teachers interact the same all around the world, where it's very different. It's just a different norm of how students, students and teachers interact in other places. So I wanted to just, we have about five, five or so minutes left, and I just wanted to see if people had some other comments or questions, because I, I really do feel like your stories and um, really makes this more alive for us, gives us better, uh, ex- you know, more examples. So any, yeah.
So, um, yeah, so when when uh, we're in a position where we are trying to promote health and the, their solution is promoting disease, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Then how can we how can we intervene? Um, I think I feel we should, um, but I think asking those questions, just developing that that trust is important. Really understanding their perspective and this and the situation very clearly. And sometimes it's not going to be a, depending on your setting, you might be able to um, reach a consensus or provide a, a solution in that one shot, but sometimes it's going to have to build because there's a lot of different assumptions, a lot of different uh, perspective that's going into that that solution that they have that you know you don't have to change right away. So I would say if there's something that's very harmful, then it might be good to say something like, um, you know, I understand that this is what you do and this is why you do it, but I'm concerned about this, you know, and, and maybe intervene. But if it's something that's maybe not harmful but not helpful, you can maybe just leave that alone, you know, and maybe address it at a future time if you think it's important. But, yeah. I don't know. Other other ideas? Yeah. 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 You would. You wouldn't even know. Um, like that example of honesty, I wouldn't have known that if I didn't learn the language. But even with our pastors, we sh- we struggled with this idea of honesty. Hey, did you go visit Kim? Oh yeah, I visited Kim. Oh, but your motorcycle's been there all day. You know. But because that's what he thought I wanted to hear and he was being faithful to me to the ministry it's we would we would say it's lying but he would say it's faithful and um, and I just you know I, I, I can't attach my value system to that I just need to to try to understand his and sort of say well the reason why I wanted you to go see Kim was because she's having problems with this yeah you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, other questions or comments? Well, thanks so much. I know this is just... <clears throat> this is just an introduction, but I hope that if you just remember those four things, hopefully it will help you to see things a little bit better when you get into these situations where you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Um, or even the ones where I just want this to work really well, um, to ask those, go run through that, ask those questions, um, get people involved. Thanks again.